0: I don't know if this one's still on nope <clears throat> good morning. morning how we doing Good. my name is Jillian there's a few people that I don't know very well in here so I'm Jillian I am married to Scott Um, We have three beautiful kids, and we are just love that this is home for us. So glad to be here with you this morning and sharing the word. Uh, So there's a song we sometimes sing at the beginning of worship, and it actually played this morning. um, And it goes, uh, I'm not going to sing (laughs) it. Come, come alone, come however you are, just come. Do we know that one? Yeah. Okay. So there's a line in that song that just gets me every time, and it's come, let yourself be wrong. Yeah. And so hold on to that invitation because, in essence, that is what Jesus is going to be saying to us again and again throughout this next section of scripture. We are camped out here in the Gospel of Matthew in a section famously called the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm curious, does anyone have another title for that in their Bibles at the beginning of chapter five? Yeah? The Discourse on the Hill. Okay, Discourse on the Hill, yeah. So it's. Are <laughs> oh, we just going to come up with our own titles now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah so Sometimes I've, it's called "Jesus Presents the Kingdom." Or in my version, like the NLT version I have, it says, "Jesus' call to righteousness." So this sermon is a collection of teachings, and it was given to beautifully made and yet ordinary, broken people like us to show how to live in God's kingdom and how to live righteous lives, which is just a Bible way of saying in right relationship between me and God and between me and you. So we are at the beginning of what is almost a sermon within the sermon. Over the next six weeks, we will be unpacking six teachings Jesus presents. Each one starts with, you have heard it said, where Jesus quotes a command from the Old Testament, followed by Jesus saying some version of, but I tell you, where Jesus outlines his new teaching. Now this comes directly following the statements that Tom unpacked for us last week, where Jesus says that he has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So he is not correcting or overriding the law in any way, but instead he lays his teaching alongside it, alongside it as the way the law will be fulfilled. So Jesus is not here to give us more rules to follow, he is not after our obedience to rules for the sake of checking boxes, boxes, he wants to get at the root problems that make all the rules a necessity. He is after our hearts. He is wanting to renovate us, to take down the walls and the ugly wallpaper and all the grime that is caked on and he wants to strip us down to the studs, to the people we are, which is people created in the image of God. And it's for this renovation of our hearts that he presents these teachings. So he makes six of these, you have heard it said, but I tell you statements, each of them building on each other and culminating with you are perfect as you are to be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. So he's leveling us up. He is going to cover topics of anger, lust, divorce, lying, revenge, and loving your enemy. And the question is, how are we going to respond to these teachings? Or as Tom presented a few weeks ago, when are we going to stop nodding along? Jesus, in his infinite wisdom and his full and complete understanding of both the human heart and God's will, delivers these teachings so beautifully and so intelligently and in such a way that no matter where you are at this moment, no matter where you find yourself, no longer nodding along, he presents these teachings with an invitation to come and let yourself be wrong. Jesus is about to get really into our business here personally and professionally, privately and publicly. And if we get to the end of these six teachings and we're not a bit shooken up and we don't feel convicted, then we're missing the point. So come, let yourself be wrong. Alternatively though, if we make it through these teachings which build and build and finally culminate with be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect, and if we get there and we think, darn, that's impossible. I'm kind of a terrible person, I'll never be righteous, then we're also missing the point. Come let yourself be wrong. Matthew ends the entire sermon with this verse, Matthew 7:28, 29. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. These are Jesus's teachings, guys. His presentation of the unshakable kingdom of God. They are as challenging today as they were when he first presented them, but they are spoken by one with authority, by the one who Paul would later say, who began the good work in you and will continue his work until it is finally finished these teachings are as much a promise as they are instructions and jesus always keeps his promises so with that framework we're going to get into the first teaching today but i'm going to pray first lord thank you that you are here that you are moving thank you that your spirit is in this place that's in each one of us i ask that you just take these words and multiply them make them into your words lord and i ask that you also multiply the little bits of ourselves that we're willing to give you today make us into the people of your covenant um and yeah just show us where we are wrong in your name we pray amen So first up is jesus's teacher on anger and your bible may have the heading murder which i was a little alarmed with when tom first gave me the scripture i was teaching on (laughs) Um, it focuses on our heart postures related to anger and contempt remember how jesus in his undeniable intelligence has laid out this teaching systematically and anger is the first thing he wants to address in his renovation of our hearts because he understands that if we were to trace back most of the terrible actions done throughout human history at the root we would find anger So let's take a look at today's text you have heard it said to the people long ago you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment so here's an old testament teaching it comes straight from the ten commandments And we can like vigorously nod our heads with this one, Like, Yes, Jesus, murder's wrong. There should be judgment for that. So next Jesus is going to lay out his new teaching or how he sees the law being fulfilled. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. You're like, okay, yeah, I can see how anger can be a bad thing, but the same judgment as murder? Dramatic, dramatic, but... and then he continues. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, or empty head, which we would translate as something like, you idiot, um, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. And now we've stopped nodding, because um, Jesus seems to be taking this a bit far, uh, There's a very good chance that you or I have said or thought something similar this week about someone. So it can't be, he can't be that serious, right? He is that serious. Um, Check out verse 23. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. So Jesus is presenting a hypothetical situation here, um, but I want to break down what that instruction would have actually meant for a listener at the time. So he's speaking to the crowds in the Sea of Galilee, somewhere in the north of Israel. And the altar for a first century Jewish culture can only be referring to one place. It's not like today where we can walk down Victoria Street and there's 10 places of worship. Does anyone know where the altar would be at that time? That's right, in Jerusalem, which is 130 kilometers away. So hypothetically, you're a peasant and you're living in Galilee, and once a year you make your pilgrimage to Jerusalem, you offer your sacrifice in the temple, and you suddenly remember that your neighbor back home is ticked off with you for some reason, And by the way, I don't know if I said this, but your sacrifice would be a live animal. So you're traveling with your goat or something like that. And so then you get there and you leave your goat with the priest and you hike 130 kilometers back to your neighbor and you do your best to reconcile them with them. And then you hike 130 kilometers back and you hope someone's been feeding your goat and it's still there and you offer it as a sacrifice. And it sounds ridiculous and laughable, but it's proving Jesus' point that he's taking anger very seriously and he wants us to do the same. So what is anger and why does Jesus take it so seriously? So anger is a spontaneous response A feeling within our bodies and its primary function is to alert me of an an obstruction to my will. So it's to alert me to an obstruction of my will. And in this sense, anger in itself is not a sin. But I really love Dallas Willard's line here. Headaches are not a sin. Do we really need them? So Jesus being... Fully God and fully man, he has a perfect understanding of the human condition. And he knows that rarely do we stop at the basic function of anger as an alert, as pain as an alert, and that more often than not, we indulge the anger. And when we indulge anger, it always does some kind of harm. If you think about how you feel when someone is angry with you, you have, they haven't said or done anything to you yet but there is some harm there, you can feel it. Anger in itself does violence to another. Not only that, but your anger at me is actually an obstruction to my will. Now, I can't continue on behaving as I was because I know that you're angry at me. And when I indulge my anger, it leads to more harm. And then anger feeds on anger and on past hurts and on wounded egos and on self-righteousness. And left unchecked, it morphs into something far more harmful, which is contempt. So this more Dallas Willard. In anger, I want to hurt you. In contempt, I don't care whether you are hurt or not. Contempt is when we begin to degrade another person's humanity, their image of God. And we start to take that away. This is the behavior Jesus called out when he says, anyone who says to a brother or sister, you idiot, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. So you fool is not a phrase that has translated well into our culture. We hear hear that and think it a kind of a mild insult. But in the original context of the Bible, to call someone a fool was degrading. It is to call a person, not just stupid, but arrogant or careless. So to view someone in this form of contempt means you judge not just their behavior, but their character as well. There is an element of they deserve what's coming to them in contempt. And if we look at all of the really terrible things that have happened in the course of human history, the ones that make you ask, how does this even happen? Things like Holocaust, or slavery or genocide or human trafficking they all start with the belief that someone or some group of people are less than human and that's what contempt is human beings don't wake up one morning and decide to commit horrific acts out of the blue but small seeds of anger fueled by wounded egos eventually turn into contempt and then beliefs that I am better than someone else because they are in some way flawed or immoral or wrong, fester into speaking and acting in a way that makes it clear to that person and everyone else that they are acting wrong or that they are less than. It's often a violence that is so common we don't think of it as violence, things like insults or name calling, excluding or shaming. And when left unchecked, they can lead to unthinkable acts like murder. And that's extreme. And thankfully, on a whole, humanity stops the cycle well before it gets to that point. But anger and what it leads to are so at odds with the kingdom of God, a kingdom which is built on right relationships, on God's justice and mercy, on forgiveness and compassion and love. And having a heart posture which leans even slightly towards the degradation of another human being is incompatible with the kingdom. So Jesus is getting at the root problem. He sees that if we eliminate anger, we eliminate not only murder, but all violence and all the broken relationships caused by anger. And so in a sense, it is such good news for us that he takes it so seriously. There are a few things actively working against this stance within our culture that we need to be aware of. First, in our world of social media and 24-hour news cycles and celebrity politics, it's very easy to think that we know more about people than we actually do, because we see way more of their lives than we were ever meant to. This is not relationship, it's false intimacy. And false intimacy developed in this way makes it very easy to judge not just the actions of a person, but their character as well. And it's a real danger that we can adopt the assumption that they are wrong, they are immoral, they are corrupt, and that God agrees with me. And it's an attitude out of sync with the kingdom. The other thing we have to be aware of in this cultural moment is that anger is used and even encouraged as a tool to bring about change. Change for you personally, like how you're treated by your employer or your neighbor, your government or even your spouse, anyone who can affect your will. And change on a larger scale, things like systemic racism or our healthcare or protecting our environment. And the thing is there are very real injustices in our world, in our country and in our community. We live outside Eden and things are not good here but actions fueled by anger just lead to more anger, and then the vicious cycle we talked through keeps going. James 1.20 says, human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. So Jesus presents us with this teaching not to be angry and to break this vicious cycle, and that leaves us with the question of how. Perhaps we just avoid situations that make us angry, only engage with the type of person who agrees with me and the way I see things. That would be easy. I could probably not be angry, unless my children are not there. (laughs) But that's not how the kingdom works, is it? What he actually suggests are two things which are difficult but are of the highest value in the kingdom. And they are relationship and reconciliation. I can offer you a very brief summary of the biblical story here. Since before the beginning of time, God has existed in perfect loving relationship of father, son, and spirit. God creates humankind in his image to rule and reign in the kingdom founded on this perfect relational love. humanity chooses to live not in god's kingdom under god's rule but instead to rule our own kingdoms forfeiting the right relationship god created us for the rest of your bible can be summed up as god working to reconcile us into right relationship with him and with each other and after many trials and failures and covenants broken by us righteousness or right relationship finally comes in the form of a person, and that's Jesus. If you want to see these values of relationship and reconciliation lived out, we need not look forward further than who Jesus surrounded himself with during his ministry. Do we really suppose that Jesus who calmed storms with his voice and made the lame walk and the blind see? Do we actually think he needed a band of bumbling ragtag disciples to help him in his redemption mission? Do you think perhaps it might have been easier if he just just did the work by himself? (laughs) But that's not how the kingdom operates. He gathers to himself a group of followers, which include Matthew, a former tax collector who's employed by Rome and considered a traitor to his people, And then there's the number of working class men who Matthew probably collected unfair taxes from. And then Simon the Zealot, a former member of an extremist group looking to overthrow the government Matthew was employed by. I think it's safe to assume there would be some conflict. And yet under Jesus's discipleship, these men who likely harbored contempt for one another become brothers. They reconcile with each other and they become righteous by it. So back to our teaching text, let's look again at Matthew five twenty three. Therefore if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. It's a biblical truth that our relationship with God is tied up with our relationship with each other. And if you are feeling disconnected or far away from God, there could be many reasons for that, but one may be that you're at odds with someone else. So take note though, this passage does not say, if you remember you have something against a brother or sister, but that they have something against you because this is not about me. I cannot be in the kingdom of God while I am in the kingdom of self. Reconciliation cannot be about me and the ways I have been hurt. It's always about love for the other. So I just wanna take another look at an interaction between Jesus' and his disciples and what kingdom reconciliation looks like. So this is from later on in Matthew, Matthew 20, 24. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. So what has just happened here to spark this reaction is that James and John and their mother had privately met away from the group with Jesus and requested that James and John get to sit on Jesus's right and left in the kingdom. And that's an admittedly dumb thing to ask of Jesus. <laughs> but the other 10 when they find out about it they're not just thinking oh james and john the dumb question all right moving on they're like they're indignant they are angry and offended at them there has an element of contempt Like, how could you ask that what is wrong with you and jesus makes a reply here that speaks not just to james and john's request he could have just dealt with them privately but this is to the whole group Jesus calls them together and he says, you know that the rulers and the Gentiles lorded over them, the, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be the first must be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Reconciliation that breaks the cycle of anger is not self-seeking. It is always for the good of the other. All Right, back to our teaching text in Matthew. Verse 25, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown in prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. The main piece of advice in this scenario is to settle matters quickly. Don't give anger a chance to fester and get blown out of proportion. Don't put off difficult conversations. For someone like me, who's very uncomfortable with conflict, it's a very difficult thing to do. But what ends up happening is that we harbor these hurt feelings that another person doesn't even know we have, until there's a wedge in our relationship that they aren't even aware of. And that's not loving. So reconcile quickly. And this is all great advice. But it does leave us with yet another question. What if the other person won't be reconciled? What if you have attempted in love and humbleness to settle the matter and it can't be settled? Then you take heart in knowing that day by day, hour by hour, you're being formed by the Spirit into a person of righteousness, a person of the kingdom. And you trust that rather than planting a seed of anger, the seed of love and compassion and forgiveness you plant will eventually and slowly lead to a renovation of the heart, which is the point. Another quote by Dallas Willard. Thank you. We do not control outcomes and are not responsible for them, but only for our contribution to them. Does our heart long for reconciliation? Have we done what we can honestly? Do we refuse to substitute ritual behaviors for genuine acts of love? Do we mourn for the harm that our brother's anger is doing to his own soul, to us and to the others around him? If so, we are beyond the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees and immersed in God's ways. Mm -hmm. All right, one more example from the life of Jesus. If you're familiar with any biblical stories, the title of today's teaching, Jesus and Anger, may bring to your imagination a scene we will get to a year from now in the Gospel of Jesus, or the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus turns over the tables in the temple court, and he creates a whip, and he drives out the money handlers who were taking advantage of people in that temple. And it's an event written about in all four Gospels. It actually happened, and it is usually interpreted as an act of righteous anger. And in his righteous way, Jesus did bring justice to those people who were being taken advantage of. But there is another story of Jesus, one that is an act of reconciliation, an act that is so powerful that no matter if you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came to take away all sins, or you just think he was another man, his actions changed the entire course of history. Can you think of a time where Jesus' adversaries would not reconcile with him? Where they took him to court and they handed him over to the judge and the officer who did not release him until he paid the ultimate price. He did not respond to their anger with anger. He responded with forgiveness and the most spectacular act of sacrificial love. <laughs> we worship a God who was so powerful, he could easily just wipe evil off the planet. It would be far easier and faster way to accomplish the law that way, guys. <laughs> but instead he chooses to work with us in the slow process of renovation to make us righteous because he longs for a relationship with us, broken and sinful as we are. To remember Jesus' work on the cross is to remember that we are beloved to God. And that is the sustaining thought that's going to make all of this possible. That's how we live in the way the way Jesus is calling us to, together with the Spirit. Brennan Manning says, if I am not in touch with my own belovedness, then I cannot touch the sacredness of others. So when you find it difficult to not give in to anger, when you find it difficult to seek reconciliation, When you look at your neighbor or your brother-in-law or your political leader or your church leaders, and it's difficult to look past their behavior and still see them as the image bearers of God that they are, remember your own belovedness and help it remind you of theirs too. So I'd like to leave us with a few questions to ponder and to challenge us to actively be people of kingdom reconciliation others centered reconciliation with each other in this community. And with all of the beloved image bearing people that you share your life with. These are my questions for you. Where in your life are you choosing to be angry? That's when it's, it's not, you know, the instant, oh, I'm angry. Okay. Moving on. But where are you choosing to linger and to indulge that anger? Who do you need to be reconciled with? And how are you allowing God to remind you of your own belovedness and the belovedness of others? And we'd like to offer prayer ministry um, after church and in our community groups um, as we kind of start to wrestle through some really big topics in the next few weeks. So keep an eye out for that if that's something you're interested in. Um, And I wasn't quite sure how it was going to end today yet, but um, just with everything we've been doing this morning, I think I just want to read again a scripture Tom read to us last week from Jeremiah 31 um, and just remind us that, that, like I said, these are Jesus' words and Jesus' teachings and he keeps his promises. And so this is the covenant that Jeremiah foretold when Jesus came it's in Jeremiah 31. I'm going to start in verse 33. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. I'm gonna end in prayer, thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that this, this is your work. This is what you're here, you came to do within us. And um, yeah, just have your way. Holy Spirit, increase our faith, increase our expectation. We love you, God. Amen. That's a beautiful word, Julie. Thank you. Um, uh, I, I imagine some of us in the room are feeling some